you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. We'll be looking at that this morning. Revelation chapter 20, begin reading out the first verse, John writes and says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Amen. Let's pray. (laughs) Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us now, give us understanding in your word, and we do pray that you would bless us. Open our minds to your word and your word to our hearts and minds, and open our hearts also to it. Bless us, we pray. Give us grace to receive that which you have said. And guide us through this passage, Lord, we pray. And uh, help us to know what it means to us today, and even as what it meant to your saints in days past. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, Heavenly Father, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to this 20th chapter, and... A lot of things going on, obviously, before we get to this. We've seen in this book the uh, opening chapter, John's vision of Christ, and then we saw the seven epistles addressed to the churches. Uh, in, it says in Asia, we understand that today, Asia Minor or Turkey, uh, the churches that were there along the, the western coast of modern-day Turkey. Christ addressed each one of them, and then we begin to see things change. The, the scene shifts from earth to heaven where the Lamb before the throne receives the scroll, you might say, of destiny or whatever is to be unfolded in history. And then he begins to open the seals and all types of things happen. Primarily, we see two things. We see the judgment of God upon a wicked world, a world being brought into submission under Christ by his providence, by his word, and by his spirit. Uh, We see God's judgments falling. And we see this warfare because this isn't done Uh, where everyone immediately becomes willing. We see that men fight against their own salvation. The nations rage, as it says in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But then it says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. So God has his plan and his purpose. We saw in chapter 19 that the word of God went forth. They say, I don't believe that's the second coming because the second coming isn't Christ returning on a horse with the armies of heaven following him. The second coming is Christ coming in fiery judgment and when all the dead are raised. In chapter 19, his word goes forth. The sword out of his mouth subdues the nations because it says he then rules over them. He doesn't destroy them, he subdues them and begins to rule over them. And I believe what we're seeing in chapter 19 is the fulfillment 
ultimately of the Great Commission. We're seeing this happening in our own day. When Jesus said, go into all the world, says Matthew chapter 28, verses uh, 18 and th- to the end of the chapter, go into all the world. Well, first he said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Then he said, go and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And then he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Christ wasn't giving a suggestion there. He was telling us what the church must do, what his people must do. We're to tell people about Christ. We're to make students of them, disciple them. That word make disciples, the uh, disciple in Greek is the word mathetes, and it means simply students. We become students of Christ. He is our teacher. We learn from his word. It's obviously more than that because it's a heart commitment, but it is that. We are students of, of Christ, of his word. He is our teacher. He is the one that we follow. And so we learn of him. The job, you might say, or the calling of the church, that is the people of God, is to disciple the nations. And notice Jesus didn't say, go and disciple some of the nations. He didn't say, go and disciple part of the nations. He said, go disciple the nations. Now, the word nations is ethnoi. It's often translated Gentiles. And so the gospel has gone out first to the Jew and then to the Greek, as Paul said, or the Gentiles. It goes out to all the world. And Christ is going to subdue this world. The time will come, Scripture promises, as we often quote, the time will come when the earth will be covered with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Now, the seas are pretty deep, okay? And uh, they're pretty vast also. There's more ocean than there is land on earth. There's going to be a time when God's word prevails completely. That doesn't mean there won't be any sinners on earth. You know, we were looking at uh, Revelation 19 and 20. But if you remember that passage in Isaiah 65, we'll take a quick gander at that. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. In Isaiah 65, next to the last chapter in Isaiah, it describes a wonderful time. If you notice in verse 17, God speaks as this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Ultimately, it's pointing toward that, but he's beginning to speak now of the people that are part of that. He says, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. God says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. The Jerusalem there, as Paul says, the Jerusalem that we have to do is the Jerusalem which is above, the heavenly Jerusalem. But then it says in verse 20, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Verse 20 tips us off that this is not talking about the eternal state because there's still death and there's still uh, sinners and old age and infants being born. But he says that things will be different. But we see here that this millennial period is often referred to. Some refer to it as a golden age where the gospel is triumphant. Uh, it'll still still be sin in the earth. There'll still be a need to preach and teach the gospel. But we'll see that the gospel overwhelmingly will prevail, that the wicked will be in a, in a very small minority. Then he gives us this beautiful, comforting promise. They shall build houses and inhabit them. Well, in eternity, Christ said he's going to build uh, houses for us. He said, I go to you know, seek a place for you. In my father's house are many mansions. Actually, that can be in apartments or houses. Uh, some believe it has reference to the uh, lodging places that were in the temple where the priests stayed, uh, that Christ is preparing a place for us. But here it says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. So see, children are still going to be born during this time. So this is not the eternal state. Because remember, Christ said in heaven, there's, uh, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but we'll be like the angels in heaven. That is, we'll be brothers and sisters. But the institution of marriage and childbirth and those things, that'll be done. 
But in this case, children are born. And, but it tells us, they shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. So you have those three generations there. They themselves that he's referring to will be the descendants of those who are blessed by the Lord and their offspring, that is their children, are reckoned with them as part of God's covenant people. And so we see that here. So uh, it's kind of a picture of what, what's to be expected when the gospel is triumphant. Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 9, 10, and 11, he talks about the Jews. He said eventually the Jewish people will be brought back into the church. And he says the Gentiles themselves are going to come in. The fullness of the Gentiles will happen. So we see that beginning in chapter 19. We saw in 18 where the, the city was destroyed. Some say, well, is it physically? Is that the city that was in opposition? Many believe that's Rome there. I'm persuaded that it is. Whether that city is going to be destroyed or just the institution that is uh, there, you know, the Roman Catholic Church with all of its apostasy and outrageous claims that they're the only true church and that unless you're in submission to the Pope or you participate in their sacraments, uh, which are blasphemous, some of them, uh, that you can't go to heaven. It's like, no, the Bible's very clear. You believe in Jesus Christ, you're trusting in him, you're saved, all right? And the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper that Christ appointed, those are for your encouragement and to build you up. They're not saving, but they are pictures of what happened so that you could be saved. Rome changes all that, and they confound the thing symbolized with the symbol itself. And they say that the bread in the sacrament of the Lord's table really is physically Jesus' body. So you're committing cannibalism at the Lord's table in the Roman church, and that the wine really truly becomes his physical blood which is a lie okay when jesus instituted the lord's supper and he said this is my body this is my blood when he handed him the bread and the wine he also said or you know someone pointed out he also said i am the door okay so nobody goes we need there there's jesus there's a door that must be jesus because he said he's the door we say no no that's symbolic language christ was sitting right there with them when he handed them the bread when he handed them the cup I doubt seriously if any of the apostles thought that this is, wow, Jesus has just became a piece of bread for us, okay? It's a foolish doctrine, and yet people have been killed because they didn't believe that. St. Bartholomew's massacre that took place all through France, the main thing that they would ask someone is, do you believe that the Holy Sacrament is the true physical body and blood of Jesus? And if they said no, they killed him. They killed thousands of Protestants in the days of St. Bartholomew's massacre. It was a horrible event. So we see this bloody church is going to be destroyed. And if it's God's pleasure, wouldn't it be great? And hopefully so, it'll be destroyed because the people that are in it, the priest and the people, will get saved. They'll get their eyes open. They'll see, wait a minute, the Bible doesn't teach what we've been teaching. That's what happened at the Reformation. You know, if you go back and read it, well, the reformers stood up against all those priests. No, the reformers were priests, most of them, in the Roman Catholic Church. And they got saved by reading God's word and hearing the gospel. And they began to preach it, and pretty soon they got thrown out. Okay, that's where they came from. The term Protestant, it's when the German princes met with the uh, Southern European princes, and they were trying to find some way so that they wouldn't be fighting with each other, because the German princes were Protestant under Luther, uh, and the Roman Catholics said, well, here's the agreement. Here's the agreement. If you let us build churches and evangelize for the Roman Catholic Church in your countries, that would be great. And then the German princes that were Protestants said, okay, so then we can do the same thing in your country. They said, oh, no, 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 we're not going to allow that. They said, wait a minute, so you can come into our countries and do all this stuff, but we're not allowed to go into your countries and do all this stuff. They said, yeah, that's the agreement we want. The German princes got up and walked out in protest. And that's why Protestants are protesters, okay? They left in pro protest. So if you're reformed in your theology, that is the church reformed on the basis of scripture or a Protestant. Some people treat those like they're dirty words and they're not. Historically, they're awesome events that happened. They protested against the usurpations and the claims of Rome. All right. So we've seen that God has sent revival and saved people, and that's what we need to pray for, that God will save those who are in slavery to these false systems. But John sees in his vision that 
the city is destroyed, and then he sees the army of the enemy that's still left in the field, even though their capital has been destroyed. There's still an army. And so we read that when the uh, com coming of Christ through the power of his word, and I believe what we're seeing there is Christ going forth through his church, and he, he uh, causes the nations to be saved. And they, the wicked, though, who don't submit to him, they fight in it at the end of Chapter 19, we read it, verse 19, And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's Christ and his church there. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. That could be a reference to either them physically dying or them being converted. If you remember, Paul said in Romans 7, he said, I was alive once without the law, but then the commandment came and I died. That is, the law of God showed Paul he was dead in trespasses and sins. He didn't love God as he ought to. He didn't love his neighbor as he should. He saw that he was really, truly dead spiritually. And then what happened? He met Christ on the road to Damascus. Christ raise him from the dead. And so we see this. That's how 19 ends. Okay, and it says, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. In other words, they were wiped out. And then we see chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. So the beast and the false prophet had been thrown in the lake of fire. The devil himself, though, was still loose for a little while. But at that same time, once they're cast into the lake of fire... Uh, an angel comes down from heaven, and he laid hold of the dragon. The Greek word is he seized him, he arrested him. That serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, the thousand years may be symbolic of a long period of time. It may be understood that the thing in the, uh, symbolized and the thing it represents are actually pretty close. I'm personally persuaded it probably is a thousand year period. But we read this angel after he had seized Satan and bound him. This angel, had a, he bound him with a chain that he had, a great chain. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him. And here we're told what this means. That he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. And if we look around, we see the deception that is in this world. You know, we see lies are peddled off as if they're the truth. We see people involved in false religions. We see it in the political realm. Sometimes we look at things that people believe ought to be done or things that they think they have rights to do of you know, horrible abominations before God. We look say, How could people be that deceived? Well, Satan is a deceiver. The word Satan is a Hebrew word, Satan, and it means the adversary. The word devil comes from Greek, diabolos, and it means a slanderer. Okay, And here we just read... He is a deceiver. Jesus said he's, the, he's a liar and the father of lies. Now, even when Satan is bound, if the, that passage in uh, Isaiah is referring to the millennial period, we learn there that, oh, there's still sin in the world. So even if the devil's not around, we still have a sin problem as human beings. Problem is, though, with the man's sin problem, he's prone to deception, and you have a spirit in the world... A personal spirit, Satan, he's real. It's not just an idea. Satan's real, very clearly from Scripture. Okay, Who then deceives them, puts a veil over their eyes, and they're deceived. But he's not going to be able to do that for a thousand years. But they, will, they can be tricked by their own heart. James said every man sins when he's led away of his own lust. So even if the devil's not around, they're still going to be led astray. There's still going to be a need for prayer there's still going to be a need for repentance but it will be happening on a faster level you might say or on a, a more uh, prominent level so we can't deceive the nations that's the purpose of him being cast into the bottomless pit for until the thousand years are finished but then john adds but after these things he must be released for a little while now john was talking about future things from his day very possibly he's talking about things of future to our day be nice to think we're right on the edge of this happening, but people have thought that a lot. You know, they think, oh, if only this happens, if we elect this guy to office, or if we defeat that nation, or if we 
do something, uh, we can we can start the millennium. You know, some the, the uh, you know if we rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, yeah, that's it. Let's go in and offer sacrifices again. You have the messianic uh, claiming that they worship Jesus or Yeshua, they call him, uh, wanting to see the temple built. Not all of them believe that, okay, but. Uh, the idea, oh, once we get the temple built, we can go back in and offer blood sacrifices. Yeah, you can go back in and do the very thing that caused the temple to be destroyed the, the, in 70 AD. If you want to go provoke God's wrath, then start doing you know, animal sacrifices again because that stuff came to a screeching halt when Christ said, it is finished. And the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And so we see here that... The gospel is going to be triumphant, but, you know, that's one of my professors once referred to some of the people promoting the Holy Land tours as, yeah, if we can only, you know, get this to go. He said, yeah, the, the force the Lord's hand Holy Land tours, you know. Uh, we'll go over and see what we can start, you know, and we'll make God bring the millennium. It's not going to happen that way. And so, but we do see that this thousand-year period, if it's symbolic or literal, you know, you can study out the Bible and come to your own conclusion on that. I believe it's probably actually a thousand-year period, a long time. But the devil's going to be released at the end of that period for a little brief spell as we read at the end of chapter 20, but we're not going to go that far today. And then John says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then he says, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Well, I believe Jesus comes back physically at the end of this period, and I think that when he says, I saw the souls, I don't think he's talking about a physical resurrection. When he says this is the first resurrection, I think he's seeing people that were saved. Jesus said, you know, that uh, when you're born again, you're brought out of death into life, John 5, 24. If you're a Christian, you've been born again. You have been brought out of death into life. But let's consider a few things here, all right? So, in, uh, so excuse me here, let me get back to where we should be. So as we look at this passage, as we look at you know, the, the section of Scripture here, we see that the, the devil is bound, and then we see uh, the, he can't deceive the nations. He sees thrones set. So John saw an angel come down from heaven, as we read, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. The word bottomless pit is the abyss. It comes from a Greek word meaning something without a bottom. Okay, so bottomless pit's a pretty good uh, English translation. So the angel, angel very well represents a messenger of the gospel. That's what the word angel means. And the chain is the restraint that God's word faithfully preached puts on the enemy. It could indeed mean that. Uh, it could just mean in the spiritual realm this happens. The key is that which Christ possesses. In Revelation chapter 1, 18, he said that he possesses the keys of hell and of death. So uh, any keys of authority, remember all authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. So the devil seizes the dragon, binds him with the great chain, and casts him into the bottomless pit, locked him in, and sets a seal over him, as I said, specifically saying so that he cannot deceive the nations during the thousand years he is imprisoned. Uh, this means, I believe, that during this period, not only will the truth and glory of God's word shine forth as it always does, but then even more brightly, but that men will have the veil removed from their minds and be enabled by God's gracious spirit to see it clearly. In Isaiah 25, 7, the Lord speaks and says, And he, that is the Lord through Christ, and he will destroy in this mountain talking about Zion, and Calvary, by the way, is part of that mountain. He will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. So there's a veil over the eyes of the Gentiles. This is why we see the opposition to the gospel. If you think about it, opposing Christ and opposing the gospel is insane. It's the message of life. See, yeah, but men don't see it. Why? Well, Paul tells us. Paul says in first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 3, actually, excuse me, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, that's a reference to the devil, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of those which believe not 
lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The light of the truth of God's glory shines brightly. Why don't they see it? Because the enemy has blinded their hearts through unbelief. Paul says in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. Moses, when he came down from the mountain, he veiled his face because the glory of God shone in him. And Paul it says also here, but in Hebrews it says that glory was diminishing, so he covered his face. Uh, but their minds were blinded, for until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. So he says, even now, when the scriptures are read in the synagogues, they don't get it. Why? Because there's a veil over their hearts and minds. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, that is the heart, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. So Paul looks forward to that time. So uh, John sees thrones set, verse 4, and those seated upon them. Uh, in Revelation chapter uh, 2, verses 26 and 27, uh, refers to Christ's promise to the Thyatiran church that those who, the one who overcomes will be seated with him on his throne and will have authority over the nations. The promise given to the victors in Thyatira, that he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him, Christ says, I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with the rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. Revelation 2, 26 and 27. So secondly, John sees those who sat upon the thrones. He says the souls of those who had been beheaded, and for two reasons, for the testimony of Jesus, that is, they wouldn't shut up about the gospel. They loved Jesus, and Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And because their hearts were filled with the love of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, they wouldn't be quiet. And for that, they were killed. For the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Also, he says, he saw those who would not worship or had not worshipped the beast in his image. However, that's understood, this monstrosity, this false religious, this fake church, and all of its claims, and all of its power, both political and ecclesiastical. They didn't worship that. They didn't uh, worship the beast nor his image. Neither had received the mark upon their forehead or on their hands. They stayed clear of the apostasy. Those he saw live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, this could be a partial resurrection bodily of all the saved at the beginning of the millennial period. Uh, Jonathan Edwards thought there, there is some uh, credence to be given to that idea. And if there is, well, then you can see the effect that would have on the churches, wouldn't it? If, you know, if the Apostle Paul were raised from the dead, okay, and, and back preaching and teaching, uh, that, that would affect things, all right? Jonathan Edwards thought that might be a possibility, so of some other writers. Um, uh, and of either of all the saints that had gone before, or those who had been martyred, such an event, again, would certainly affect the nations. And you can imagine the conversion and spiritual stability that would bring. But there's something else that must be considered when examining this prophecy in the light of the whole of Scripture, which is the promise of Elijah's return, given in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. God said there, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's the last words of the Old Testament scriptures in our Bibles. This prophecy or this promise of Elijah's coming was fulfilled. Uh, the same way that very possibly this prophecy in Revelation 20 verse 4 may be fulfilled also. Malachi promised uh, the coming of Elijah was fulfilled actually by the coming of John the Baptist who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. In Luke 1, 17, when Gabriel speaks to Zacharias, uh, John the Baptist's father, he said, Gabriel said to him, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. He's talking about John the Baptist is going to go before Christ. He's going to be on the scene preaching. We find that historically that worked out 30 years later. That's what's happening. 
He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, John the Baptist himself said that he was not the same person as the prophet Elijah. That's in John chapter 1, verses 21 through 27. But verse 21, there the delegation had been sent from Jerusalem to John the Baptist. As he's out on the Jordan River, he's preaching, he's baptizing people. He was a Levite, so he's cleansing the nation, um, getting them ready for the coming of the Messiah. And so they, they ask him, are you Elijah? That's uh, verse 21 of John chapter 1. And they asked him, saying, uh, what then, art thou Elijah? And he saith, I am not. And then they said, art thou that prophet? In Deuteronomy 20, uh, 18, verse 18, there was the promise that God was going to send a, prom, a prophet like Moses and so they thought, well, are you this promised prophet? And Elijah said, no. But when they asked him, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. And yet, Gabriel said he would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And we'll see in a moment, Jesus actually said he was Elijah. Not the person of Elijah. Okay, uh, That he was Elijah in the fulfillment of that prophecy because he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But he was not personally Elijah. In Matthew chapter 17, verse, beginning at verse 10, we're told of Christ's disciples, his students. His disciples asked him, that is, they asked Jesus, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? They said, that's what the scribes teach us, and the scripture seems to say that. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already. And they knew him not but have done unto him whatsoever they desired. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, verses 14 and 15, Jesus said, And if you will receive it, speaking of John the Baptist, and he had quite a few things to say about John, uh, you know, thanking God for him and letting him know this was a very important person in God's plan and Jesus said, and if you will receive it, this is Elijah, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. <clears throat> so we see the promise of Elijah's coming was fulfilled by God sending John the Baptist, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So if what we're reading in Revelation is a symbolic description of what's going to happen, it could possibly be the same thing that God's going to raise up a generation that will come in the spirit and power of the early martyrs and witnesses for Jesus. Okay, Some say, well, could it? Very likely it could. We saw what happened with Elijah and John the Baptist. It could be a similar thing. I'm just saying, using Scripture to interpret Scripture. So in a similar manner in Revelation 20, it might be telling us that at the beginning of the millennium, the spirit of the martyrs and witnesses for Jesus may be raised up in a new generation of Christians. Might be you! Okay, depending on when this is going to come about, God might be talking about some of you guys or everybody here in this room. We don't know. Have to wait and see. But it sure wouldn't hurt to sharpen your zeal for Christ, would it? Okay, uh, You can be sure that God wants you to be as faithful as those early martyrs and witnesses were and for you to love the Lord and to speak up for Christ and to see this world changed. And in, the sense, in a good sense, not harming anyone, but in the sense that we don't take prisoners. We don't compromise with the world. We say, no, Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. All men must repent and believe upon him. Everyone is obligated before God to do that. So he says, well, but, I, you know, that's your reality. Like, no, that is the truth from God. That's his word. Well, how do you know the Bible's true? Why don't you read it and find out, okay? The Bible is self-authenticating. You know what that means? It means when you read it, it's like, you know, how do you know fire is hot? Somebody hands you a coal and say, you know, the heat of this coal is self-authenticating. And they go, I don't believe that. Well, here, hold it for a second. I guarantee you, what's going to happen? The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. All right? Uh, problem is, you got, you're dealing with dead men, so you have to rely on God. That is dead spiritually. You have to rely on God to bring them to spiritual life so they'll begin to discern the things that are true. God may raise up a generation of Christians at the time, at the, the beginning of this period, who will be fearless and bold as the martyrs and saints who went before. Revelation 24, it says, the saints who were seated to judge the nations in this verse 
are not seated at the last judgment, for that will happen at the great white throne, which is mentioned at the end of chapter 20. After the close of the millennium on the last day, as shown in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, as I just mentioned. Uh, and then in verse 5 says uh, this, uh, that this resurrection is not the physical resurrection of believers as proven by Christ's promise to raise believers up at the last day. This is not the last day in redemptive history. In John 6, 39, 40, 44, and, 40, and 54, we read, uh, Christ is speaking, he says, and This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose none. He's talking about the elect. But I should raise it up at the last day. Day. So when are the believers raised? On the last day of history. Not a thousand years before the last day. And verse 40 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In verse 44 of John chapter 6, Jesus said, No man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 54, finally, Jesus said, uh, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now Daniel described the triumph of the kingdom of Christ in his prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, and in chapter 7. And in chapter 2, I want you to notice this. At verse 44, as Daniel is interpreting uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision to him. God speaks of the, the, the ten kings toward the end of the period of earthly kingdoms. And he says in verse 44 of Daniel 2, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. It's talking about the kingdom of Christ. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that's what Nebuchadnezzar saw. He saw this great statue. The head was gold and then silver and then uh, bronze and then iron and then iron mixed with clay. And then he saw a great stone cut from a mountain come and hit the, the image on its feet and it broke the whole thing into, shattered it into dust and blew it away. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. So God's going to set up a kingdom that won't be destroyed. And in uh, chapter 7 of Daniel's prophecy, at verse 12, Daniel, he sees this vision of beast fighting, and he's, it's reference to the kingdoms of the world. But in verse 12, he says, uh, As concerning the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then he says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, so he, he's seeing this, and I believe he's seeing it from the perspective of heaven. He says, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Some say, oh, that's the second coming. No, it's not. Read on. Came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. This is the ascension of Christ. This is Christ going to the Father. And came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all... Now, now note this, the extent of Christ's kingdom. If you have your Bible, this is uh, Daniel chapter 2 that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. didn't say in most people. It says in all people. It doesn't necessarily mean 100%, but it means the vast mass of mankind. That all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. You know, at the end of the millennial period, when Satan is finally destroyed and cast in the lake of fire and in the final judgment... And then eternity, that's just an extension of, and continuation of the kingdom of Christ. In verse 21, though, Daniel, as the angel, interprets to him what all these things mean. He says, and I beheld, in verse 21 of chapter 7, he says, and I beheld the same horn made war with the saints, many believe that's referring to the papacy, uh, and prevailed against them until the ancient of days came, and judgment, note, judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. I believe that's what John's describing 
and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. That is, they, as, as uh, one, one commentator said, the saints are no longer on the bottom, they'll be on the top. Okay? Things are going to change. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, generally understood to be the Roman Empire, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them. So it's going to, the Roman Empire broke into ten kingdoms historically, that's a fact. But then something else came up afterwards. Remember the beast that was and is not and yet is? It's the Roman Empire. It was and is not, and yet spiritually it still exists. And he shall be diverse from the first, that is this latter one that comes into power. And he shall subdue three kings. Just for reference, the papal kingdom, the papal estates, were formed out of three of those ten kingdoms. Again, this is historical fact. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Long period, but it's going to come to an end. But then we read, But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion. I believe that's what we read in chapter 18 and 19 of Revelation. And they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. But then note verse 27. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven, so it's still talking about on earth, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. How about the church being in the position of influence and power, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey, not it, not the church, him, Christ. Daniel said, Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. So I believe Daniel was describing the thing we're reading about. So what does all this mean? Okay, as Christ taught us, to pray for the kingdom of God to fully come. We just prayed that. We said, your will be done. Your king, will your kingdom come? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Some people say, well, but Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Absolutely. He didn't say it's not of this earth. Big difference. You gotta know, what is the world? Well, there's different definitions in scripture because at one point it says God so loved the world, meaning all the nations of men, but elsewhere it says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, he wasn't saying, I don't have a kingdom on earth. And people forget that. Christ's kingdom is established here on the, that's why he taught us to pray. What did he say? Your kingdom come. That's the word to pray. It's an imperative. Okay, an imperative of necessity. Let your kingdom come. Your will must be done. Where? In heaven? Well, it is done in heaven, no problem. Your will must be done. It's an imperative also. On earth as it is in heaven. And how do we end that prayer? For yours is the what? The kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Who taught that prayer? Jesus Christ our Lord. He told you to pray for the kingdom of God to be fully established on earth. For God's will to be the prevailing influence in life. And I believe he's going to do that. Christ taught us to pray for the kingdom of God to fully come into fruition. And we must understand the purpose of the great commission. Go and make disciples of the nation. And the importance of the means of grace. When Jesus said make disciples of the nation, that means pray for them. That means teach them the word of God. That means baptize them. Bring them under the discipleship and under the authority of God's word. So that they come to know Jesus. That's the Great Commission, and it's not, as I've said this plenty of times before, it's not a suggestion. Jesus said, go, that's an imperative, or having gone, actually, okay? Make disciples, that's the imperative there in the passage. God has both decreed the victory and the effectual working of the means of grace, that is, the preaching of the gospel and the prayers of God's people. God has he's the one that has decreed those things to, to bring about that which he has eternally decreed in Christ that he's going to do. In those days, we're going to see the Great Commission more fully fulfilled. 
As those days arrive, here's some things we're going to see, five things. We're going to begin to see the kingdom of Christ more fully manifested on this earth. We're going to see people really love Jesus and foolish doctrines and cults. It's going to just, they're going to fall away. Satan's not going to be able to deceive people. We will begin to see judgment providentially fall on the wicked works of men more swiftly. Kind of like when Burning Man got rained out, okay? All right, it's like, huh, you know celebration of debauchery and wickedness and, and some people say oh but they're nice people okay fine they need to get saved all right um, and we're not going to say there aren't any christians among them but they're not participating in things going on but then god just sent a torrential rain and ruined their whole little plan okay um we're going to see things like that happen more swiftly the fact that we're seeing some things like that now is reason to rejoice not because we want to see people suffer but because we want to see people not be doing wicked things uh, we will see hypocrites and evildoers in the church and in society removed from positions of influence and power in every realm, religious, political, and social. We're going to see false religions, the false religions of Romanism, Islam, apostate Protestantism, the cults, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the New Age cults. We're going to see those, those empires, those cult empires in every form of apostasy. They'll be swept away by, by their adher inher adherents coming to faith in Christ through the gospel and being discipled according to his word. And they're going to believe in the true Jesus Christ of history revealed in the written word of God, the Holy Bible. And we're going to see that the Bible will be loved. God's word will be cherished. And it will be obeyed by God's grace. We'll see a knowledge of God's word sweep over the nations, both Jews and Gentiles, as never before. The spirit of repentance, faith, humility... And Christian brotherhood will guide the affairs of men and nations. And we'll conclude by looking at Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And I believe here we have a picture of this millennial state, this future time that Micah saw way far off. John saw it also. And hopefully we see it maybe closer. Yeah, that's in God's hands. Might not happen in our generation. Might begin to happen. I think we're close to it myself, but, you know... By the way, the blessed hope of the church is not the millennium. It's the second coming of Christ. So don't get things confused. Okay? We're going to see great revival happen, I believe, and the gospel be triumphant. But our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on the last day. That's the blessed hope of the church. And that's what we need to preach. But in Micah chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Micah wrote and said, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow into it. I love that word. In, in the, the word for river in Hebrew is nahar. Okay, nahar. It just means river. And this is the verb form. Okay, in, in Hebrew, the word for flow. They just took the word river, and the nations will be rivered into it. You know, a river is strong. It's powerful. It's irresistible. You get thrown into a raging river, guess what? You're going where the river's going. Okay? And it says, And the nations and the people shall flow into it. God's going to be bringing the fullness of the Gentiles in. The Jewish people are going to come back to Jesus, and they're going to love him. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. I believe it's talking about the church there, okay? And coming to Christ. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his path. So we're going to be taught, and we're going to do it. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off, like the United States. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Why? Because they're not going to be hating each other anymore. Those racial hatreds, national enmities. This thing's going to fall aside. You know, I've traveled a little bit in the world. I know a lot of you here have. You know, when you meet Christians in other countries, I mean, people that really love Jesus, man, they, you've, that's your family. That's your brother. And we see that prevailing in the nations. As we often say, could you imagine if every senator and every congressperson in our country and all those political leaders in other countries, if they really, truly loved Jesus and they loved the Bible... What sort of country would we be living in? We should be praying for those people now that are in positions of power, either that God will save them or get them out of office. 
but we need to be praying that God will raise up people that love him. But can you imagine what the world will be like if you had people sitting down to discuss peace treaties and things like that and trade agreements, and they really love each other because they love Jesus and they want to see the best for each country? I think that's what he's talking about. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks because they're not going to need those weapons anymore. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. So if someone says, well, how do you know these things are going to happen? We don't see this going on. Well, beloved, we walk by faith, not by sight. And I'll tell you why, we, why this is going to happen. Because the mouth of the Lord of hosts, Jehovah of armies, the Lord Sabaoth, that's the Hebrew word for armies, has spoken it. God had said it's going to happen. So it's going to happen. So praise God. So what should we be doing now? The Great Commission, discipling the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. And we need to remember Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Praise God. We have a commission. We have a Savior. We have a future in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We thank you for this section of scripture. And Lord, we just pray that you'd guide us and direct us, Lord, um, and be with us. Help us to know and do your will and to build up your church and help us to be faithful. And Lord, if it pleases you to renew us in the spirit of those martyrs and saints and witnesses that have gone before then do it for us, Lord. We pray, fill our hearts with a love for you and a love and knowledge of your word and a love, other, to, a love for others sufficient that we would want to see them one to you and built up and encouraged. Help us, we pray. Forgive us our sins and cleanse our hearts. And Lord, we do pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. For Lord, as you taught us in that prayer, Lord, to, as it concludes, for yours is the kingdom and the power. You're the one that brings it about. And the glory is all yours forever and ever through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.